Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Good afternoon. I am so humbled and honored to be a part of Calvary's 99th annual Lenten preaching series. In my 10 years living in Memphis, it was clear to me what a special offering this is to the community, a chance to learn and dwell together throughout such a spiritually significant season for so many. Visionary in its conception and loving in its implementation, Thank you so much to Calvary's clergy and staff, particularly Reverend Bush for our time together podcasting last night, and to Heidi Rupke for your meticulous planning and gracious hospitality. I was so blessed to serve for many years as associate rabbi of Temple Israel, a congregation I deeply love. I began working there as an intern 20 years ago, and from that time to this, I was fortunate to build my rabbinate amidst wonderful congregants and fellow clergy, and of course by the side of Rabbi Micah Greenstein. It was Rabbi Greenstein who taught me, through words and actions, how vitally important it is for our faith communities to learn and to be in fellowship with each other. No value has had a greater impact on me in my work and my life than this one. It has led me to friendships that I cherish and relationships that have changed me, and it brings me constant hope for the future. It's why I stand here today. Memphis is the ground upon which I first came to believe everything that I wish to share with you today, and it stays with me as I joyfully serve Turo Synagogue in New Orleans, the oldest Jewish congregation outside the 13 colonies, founded in 1828, just a few years before Calvary. My first rabbinic pulpit, though, was in Natchez, Mississippi. I served Natchez as a student rabbi while in seminary on a monthly basis. My first Sabbath there, really my first Sabbath serving as a rabbi anywhere, was in the late summer of 2005. As it happened, it was the Sabbath immediately following Hurricane Katrina. The prescribed prophetic reading of that week was the passage from Isaiah, that Reverend Bush just shared. For a little while I forsook you, but with vast love I bring you back. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with loving kindness I will take you back. This is like the waters of Noah for me. I swore that those waters never more would flood the earth, and so I swear to not remain distant from you. Ki heharim yamushu v'hagvaot tamutena, though the mountains may move and the hills be shaken, my loyalty shall never move nor be shaken. In my tradition, these words of Isaiah are read just before Rosh Hashanah, our new year, which is why we were reading them in the late summer that year. Though their historical context is anticipating the restoration of Jerusalem after exile, they come to be understood as speaking at every time and to every person, 
which was clear to me in the wake of Katrina, reading it with many survivors who had evacuated to my small congregation in Natchez. Isaiah speaks of God's companionship in the midst of profound disruption and loneliness, drawing comparisons between the kind of experience that we might recognize and the flood of Noah, a haunting reference to read in the wake of the storm and the flood. But even then, they were comforting. For the mountains may move and the hills be shaken. My love for you will never move nor shake. Yes, life has been disrupted in a profound way and you feel disoriented like Noah did. But even in your trauma, you are not alone and there is reason to hope. This passage of Isaiah and the context in which I first relied upon it to inspire me to look more... To, it inspired me to look more deeply at the story of Noah that I thought I knew and to find within it the lessons I had overlooked when singing about twosies and kangaroosies, as perhaps some of you do. When I did study the story behind that song more deeply, I discovered that not only did the narrative of the flood speak to the experience of disaster and loss, but Noah's emotional and spiritual arc speaks to each of us as we try to find our bearings when, in the words of Isaiah, the mountains have moved and the hills have shaken and everything we thought we knew is now uncertain, a time like right now. Whether we in, are in the midst of Lent and progressing towards Holy Week or we are preparing for Pesach and the renewal that Passover promises, I suggest that the story of Noah may be speaking to each of us in our spiritual journeys right now. And to all of us in our collective ones and our collective one as we tentatively rebuild our existence after two years of global pandemic and communal transformation. In the Torah, in the Bible, it is Noah in his ark who first models a self-aware journey toward renewal and transformation. It is Noah in his ark who first grapples with the sins and failures of the past. It is Noah in his ark who first wrestles with issues of oppression and privilege, those confounding dynamics that affect all communal living. And it is Noah, emerging from his ark, who first embarks on the renewal of a life and a commitment to purpose. So I invite us to dwell for a few minutes on his story and see how it might speak to our own. We first meet Noah when he when God tells him that all life on earth will be destroyed and that he should build an ark in which to survive the impending disaster. While Abraham famously argues with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, using his power to speak for those with no voice, Noah, by contrast, offers no such protest to God's decree to wipe out an entire world for their sins. In fact, during his entire narrative, the Torah records no words from Noah at all. A lack of questioning and blind obedience is not something that my religious tradition celebrates. We are, you may know, famous arguers, even and especially with God. The rabbinic sages are keenly aware that Noah does not argue with God, does not speak up to God on behalf of his neighbors, and does not seem willing to risk himself by arguing that perhaps his neighbors, too, deserve the second chance that he alone is being given. Rabbinic commentators rationalize this callous behavior as Noah simply being a man of his generation, not so unlike his neighbors, 
Noah's generation is marked by unkindness, by radical selfishness. According to Jewish tradition, the primary sin of Noah's generation is the objectification of one another, a lack of respect for one another's basic human dignity. So when God offers Noah this life raft and Noah accepts without a word of protest or concern, he is simply exhibiting the same moral weakness as his fellows, the same lack of compassion, the same deficit of kindness. That's all it is. But then the flood arrives and Noah witnesses the world that is built by choices like his. He witnesses how the waters punish without prejudice, indiscriminately destroying all in their path. And he realizes that in the face of real danger, his way of life leaves him with nothing, no connections, no friends, and no moral substance. When the rain finally ceases, Noah has only the clothes on his back, a few loved ones he's been able to save, and the animals in his care upon the ark. And this is when he understands that he must change. The suffering he has witnessed, the fearful raging water all around him, weathers him, softens him, like a stone in a stream. Now, in a much smaller world, surrounded by this water, he focuses on the essential and the tangible. Every life on the ark becomes precious to him. He awakens to the fact that he is responsible for the safety of others, and they for him, a fact he did not know before. Through this uprooting experience, he has become grounded. My favorite Torah scholar, Aviva Zornberg, poignantly teaches the ark for Noah becomes a laboratory of kindness. And it is within this laboratory of kindness, both on the ark and within Noah himself, that he reclaims what is good in his soul and transforms himself into one who can emerge and merit God's hope and humanity's too. Despite its tragedy, Noah's story is one about redemption. It is as if Noah is living the words offered by inaugural poet Amanda Gorman that moved the entire world last January when she said, when day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. While by many criteria, Noah is a rather unremarkable person, God recognizes a potential in him to be more than he is. So God gives him a chance to change, an opportunity for repentance and restoration. And that chance begins in an ark amidst the rushing waters, a lifeboat of his own building within which he transforms himself from a rather unremarkable person into a source of hope for all humanity and even for God, a chance to step out of the shade and become the light. How does this story speak to us, to our moment? Since the last time we could freely gather for this holy season, there has been a catastrophic flood of sorts amongst us. In addition to the personal challenges and pain that occurs in every lifespan, deaths, diagnoses, divorces, downtroddenness, we together have lost so much as well. A little over two years ago, was it not inconceivable 
that most of us, to most of us that a tiny virus would change every part of our lives, rob us of birthday parties and weddings and graduations, the chance to accompany loved ones through their final days, deny us a sense of safety and closeness with family and friends? Was it not unimaginable that we would have to withdraw from one another to keep each other safe and to keep our hospitals from being overloaded, to hide our smiles? Was it not unspeakable that we would call some people essential but treat them as expendable? Unthinkable that we would let such a tragedy further erode our trust in each other, that we would find ourselves oceans apart precisely when we need each other most. What has happened amongst us is as unbelievable as the massive flood of Noah. And yet, here we are. We, too, have been forced to acknowledge, as Noah was, that we, like Noah, are part of a callous and selfish generation. We, too, are the products of an atmosphere in which we live, immersed in a culture that tolerates incivility and ignores cruelty and rewards people who objectify others. We, too, live in a world where when we encounter humility or kindness, we feel surprise or even suspicion. After what we have just been through, we cannot hide from the truth that this existence as we have known it and lived it for our entire lives is corrosive and toxic, demoralizing, and that within it, it is hard to let the best of us dictate our actions when we can barely hear ourselves think barely listen to the voices in our hearts, barely see the face of God in another. So now that we know, now that there is a lessening of the rain and a receding of the water, what shall we do? When I think back to reading Isaiah's words after Katrina, I recall how they named something so essential in the wake of that disaster and loss, something deeply emotional about Noah's experience. They named aloud that sometimes, for a little while, it can feel as if God is hidden. Isaiah says of God, For a time, I hid my face from you. That feeling of being alone, being forsaken, is validated in this text. And read in dialogue with the story of Noah that he references, we can ask ourselves this question, what do we do when it feels like God is hiding, when loss is so tremendous and fear so abundant? Noah failed to stand up for his neighbors and expand his moral universe at first, and in an act of repentance, he cultivated a laboratory of kindness upon the ark in which he would relearn the transcendence of relationship and generosity. In this place, compelled to tend to his family and to the animals in his care, he learned to reshape his expectations and sharpen his senses to an awareness that all humanity is actually dependent upon one another, that in fact there is no them. There is only us, and our fates are bound up together. He had to learn this on the ark. But Isaiah's words connect to another biblical text as well. On the Hebrew calendar, we just observed the holiday of Purim, a celebration of the courage of Queen Esther. 
It is a well-known narrative. Recall Esther must make a choice, not unlike the one with which Noah is confronted. The evil Haman has convinced King Ahasuerus, Esther's husband, to murder all the Jews of Shushan. And Esther, secretly Jewish and being married to the king, must decide if she should risk her own safety to save her people, if she should expand her moral universe and see her own survival as inextricably linked with others. Her uncle, Mordecai, famously convinces her to speak up by saying to her, Ki'im hacharesh tacharishi be'etz kazot, if you stay silent in this moment, deliverance will come to our people from a different source, and you and your family will surely perish. And consider this, that you were placed here for such a time as this. For such a time as this. In fact, it was these stirring words out of the mouth of the Reverend Dr. Roz Nichols who first, that first called so many in our community together in the basement of her church to birth Micah, Memphis Interfaith Coalition for Action and Hope, in November 2016. It was the spirit of Esther making a choice to reject objectification and selfishness that saturated her time and to choose solidarity that stirred so many of us under the brilliant leadership of Dr. Stacy Spencer to build one of the most powerful organizations in Memphis, of which Temple Israel and Calvary are both partners. Esther's decision is to build an ark big enough for everyone to believe that she has the capacity to care beyond herself and to see that capacity in others as well, to believe in them too. And this is why her story is relevant to Noah's and to Isaiah's words. Histarti panai, God says through Isaiah. My face is hidden. The word hidden in Hebrew, histarti, is embedded in Esther's name, Esther histarti. Her name means, I, God, am hiding. In fact, the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible in which we find no direct mention of God. And through Esther's story, we learn that sometimes we must bring God back into existence through our own courageous and loving actions, just as Esther did. So perhaps that is what Noah did as well. After such an awful reflection, gazing back at him in the mirror, that unkindness and callousness that had seeped into his heart so much that he didn't even try to save his neighbors. He quietly and resolutely sets about rebuilding himself with kindness and caring at his core. And Isaiah's words speak to both stories, reminding us that there will be times when God vanishes from our sight. There will be floods. There will be pandemics, oppressive regimes, private and personal deep losses, but like Noah, like Esther, we can create a space for God to return, to flow through us, to be revealed through our own kind, humble, repentant, and courageous actions. Poet and activist Sonia Renee Taylor said in 2020, and you may recall, quote, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal, other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. 
We should not long to return there, my friends. We are being given an opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all humanity and nature, end quote. Could this be what God wants us to learn when God goes into hiding? That we must be agents of change and growth, that we must soften like a weathered stone, that all the them against usness is folly in the end, that what we that we will never stay afloat unless we care for each other, learn from each other, stand up for each other, unless we stitch a new garment that fits all humanity and nature. Is this what God wants us to learn? It is important to remember that Noah re-enters a world that is not perfect, nor is the world of Esther. There is evil in it and pain. We know this because we read it and we know it because their world is ours. And it is that lack of perfection, that ever-present capacity for cruelty that our human nature harbors that makes the process of reconnecting with the best in us so very crucial. The uglier the atmosphere around us, the more determined we must be to bring beauty into it. Perhaps that is one of the messages of the rainbow with which God paints the sky at the end of the famous story of Noah. God commits with this rainbow that as long as there are people who strive to be more than they are, to resurrect that which is pure and good in them, to remember, to lead with kindness, God will never lose faith in us. By bringing something pure and perfect into a messy and imperfect world, God, as God does with the first rainbow, God is reminding us, modeling for us, that doing so is worth the struggle, worth the effort, the time, the risk, the sacrifice. Because visible, outward, out loud goodness in a world gone mad is a harbinger of hope for all. Be the rainbow. God is urging us, be a light for those who may fear that the world is entirely dark. May this holy season give us space and time to remember that the harshness of the world we live in is not inevitable, nor is it all-consuming. We can choose how we are to be in it. Noah reminds us that we have the capacity to reshape our lives even in the most difficult of circumstances, by remembering what it is like to love purely and to care for others. Esther reminds us that we are stronger and braver than we think, that we have a voice to lift and to use. Isaiah reminds us that the feeling of loneliness and confusion that we have sometimes will not last, that we are beloved, we are worthy, of second chances, all of us. May we rise to the occasion then, building our laboratories of kindness in our cities, in our congregations, in our homes, in our hearts, stitching garments of justice and equity that fit all of us and not just some, filling ourselves and one another up with inspiration and resolve on this arc we share. May the retreat that this season invites empower and invigorate us for the work that lies ahead. It is never too late to step out of the shade and be the light. Kenya Hiratsone.
Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.